Welcome to Bioethics in the Margins. We are a group of bioethicists from different institutions across the country. This podcast represents our views and those of our guests, but we do not speak for our universities or medical centers, nor for any formalized bioethics organizations. Our mission is to bring marginalized topics and voices into the bioethics discourse. This podcast is hosted by Dr. Amelia Barwise, Assistant Professor of Medicine and Biomedical Ethics at the Mayo Clinic, and Dr. Kirk Johnson, Assistant Professor of Justice Studies and Medical Humanities at Montclair State University. Please enjoy this conversation. Well, welcome to our third issue of Bioethics in the Margins, and we're delighted we have Jennifer James from UCSF with us today. And Jennifer James is an assistant professor in the Institute for Health and Aging and the Bioethics Program at UCSF. She's a sociologist and black feminist scholar whose research lies at the intersection of race, gender and health. Dr. James is a qualitative researcher whose work centers the lived experiences of those often left at the margins of research and biomedicine. Her research is informed by her background in social work and policy, and her interests include cancer, end-of-life care, patient-provider relationships, health decision-making, and reproductive justice. Her current research is focused on the ways the correction systems intersects with the healthcare system and how health inequalities may be produced and reproduced for women facing serious and chronic illnesses. She's a current Greenwall faculty scholar and is currently conducting community-based research on the forced sterilizations that occurred in California's women's prison. So a big welcome to Dr. Jennifer James. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Awesome, awesome. Uh, so let's dive in. Um, and reading your articles, and I highly suggest uh, everyone to uh, check her articles out, um, really great scholarship as a person who was a little biased because I am a person of um, scholarly critique regarding critical race theory, racism in medicine. I'm interested in hearing your thoughts on how can critical race theory, um, which you've talked about in one of your uh, peer-reviewed articles, how can critical race theory be used as a tool to help us, and I love this word you use, interrogate the reinforcement of racism in medicine? Yeah. You know, at the time we wrote that article, that was before critical race theory had the moment it's had in 2021, where suddenly everyone thought they knew about critical race theory, right? right. which is so funny. Um, and I'm glad for the attention, although I wish it was different. That's focused on CRT these days. But I, I think in this in this piece, um, part of the point we wanted to make is first that I think bioethics doesn't need to fully reinvent the wheel. There's many scholars who've been thinking about these issues for a very long time. We need to cite them. We need to engage. We need to um, engage with their work and apply it to the work that we do. So that's one point. But I think, you know, to me, critical race theory is about looking at the ways that racism has been embedded in our systems over time, the way that's produced and reproduced inequalities, the way it continues to uh, influence uh, disparities. And I think that's something that's really seen clearly in healthcare. And I think it's something we don't talk about enough. I think even uh, providers and researchers who focus on race and racism, it's often sort of seen as racism exists out there in society and not enough focus on what are the ways that racism has been embedded in medicine from the very early days of, of medical practice in the U.S. And what are the ways that medicine, I think, has played a role in perpetuating racism in our society, right? So we think about things, um, this relates to other topics we'll discuss, but like the eugenics movement, you know, it's, was, it was scientists, it was ph physicians who 
help develop the tools to say people of different races are inherently different in some way, um, which then leads to how can we intervene on that to make sure our population remains what we want it to be, that the most ideal, quote unquote, people are who are reproducing. All of that are things that came sort of from within biomedicine and that have legacies now still in the way we conduct our care. So I think it's sort of it's saying we need to do the work of, of examining medicine and its structures, both historically and the present, to see where we can see the legacies of racism so we can acknowledge them and we can um, work to eradicate them and and move forward in partnership with our with patients to do a, find a better way to advance health to more communities. So can you talk to us a bit about what is feminist bioethics and how that has been important for your work and how using that lens can can help with some of the issues that you've been focused on? Sure. Well, you know, I think, first of all, I think you could get many different answers on this from many different people. Um, But I think when I think about um, feminist bioethics or feminist ethics or even just sort of feminist epistemology and the feminist generation of knowledge in general, the couple things I I think about... um, I think about often are sort of first sort of who we're centering. I think about how we're approaching our research or our knowledge generation. And I think about how those findings um, are returned to the community more broadly. So I think it's sort of a different approach to how we're thinking, how we're thinking through problems, how we're trying to answer those problems and sort of who owns our knowledge, who owns how those things are developed. Um, And I'm really specifically interested in thinking more about how we can advance sort of a black feminist bioethics. there's a special issue of the Hastings Center report that's going to be coming out, I think, this fall. Um, that's being edited by uh, Faith Fletcher, Jenny McCurdy, and, and Vince Bonham on anti-Black racism, uh, which is very timely, obviously, currently. Um, and Yolanda Wilson has a, a really great piece in it that um, I'm writing a commentary for, so I was able to read in advance. And I really recommend when this issue comes out, everyone reads it. And she really makes the call for black feminist bioethics, specifically in the context um, of thinking about COVID-19, of thinking about vaccinations. And it's a really phenomenal piece. And one thing I think about and why I agree with this so strongly um, is if we think about sort of the core tenets of of black feminist theory, which I sort of think about as being um, centering lived experience, uh, engaging in collective dialogue, forming um, conversation um, rather than adversarial debate, um, approaching our work with an ethic of caring and having a personal accountability to our community. It just so perfectly encapsulates to me what, what bioethics should be doing, right? We should be centering our patients, um, who they are, their multiple identities, the perspectives they bring into the care that they need, to the health that they have, to how they, how they make their decisions. We should be engaging in conversation. And I think bioethics has a critical role to play in facilitating conversations between patients, providers, researchers to help solve problems, to help address uh, the difficult issues that we that we focus on in our research. Um, And it really should come from a point of of care, of thinking through emotions, of thinking through what we each bring to the table um, in these kind of discussions. And then making sure that, you know, that what we learn is returned back to our community, that we have an accountability in the way we approach our ethical decision making to the people who are the most vulnerable, who are who are most in need of sort of having their experiences centered um, and getting uh, care that they have historically not been offered in medicine. So to me, it just sort of really speaks to the work that I think bioethics could or should be doing, but perhaps has not always done in the past. I really liked your piece, um, Second Chance, um, that you, I think it's about to be published in the International Journal of um, Feminist Approaches to Bioethics. And it was, I think, 
it sort of brought back brought forward your background in sort of social work and um I think sometimes ethics can be sort of quite aloof um and it doesn't have that caring that you've that you've just mentioned um but I think it was really good to explore that topic through the eyes of sort of one person and just describe her experiences so 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 clearly um so thank you thank you for that yeah, it was really it was a fun it was a fun paper to write. Something I really love about bioethics is the ability to use narrative. Um, I think it's something we see a lot when we go to bioethics conferences is is the use of narrative to to tell someone's story, to think about opportunities for intervention. Um, and I it's something that I as a qualitative researcher I, I already love, and so I, I think it's to me that's part of why bioethics has felt like a natural fit is that we can um, sort of use narrative storytelling as a way to to convey information, as a way to help inform our thinking and our decisions so do you want to tell us more about your work that you've been doing um, in the prison system in California sure definitely so just as a a bit of background so most of my research um, for a long time has has focused on cancer so that's sort of where I I got started my dissertation work was on um, which was now way too many years ago, I feel like I need to stop talking about it as my dissertation work instead of my my prior work was on the experiences of black women with advanced cancer. Um, and through that research, um, I did interviews and ethnography and I met many women who they themselves or their loved ones um, were dealing with the, with the criminal legal system. They'd been in and out of jail or they had loved ones who had and it, it sparked a real interest in me in trying to understand what it would be like to face serious, chronic, potentially life-limiting illness while incarcerated. So much of, of my research, and I think a lot of bioethics, you know, focuses on decision making and patient provider relationships and autonomy. And I wanted to know what that looked like in, in, a, in a completely different context um, and one that affects so many people. So I did. I started a pilot project a couple years ago, um, starting with uh, talking to older Black women um, who'd been incarcerated, um, who had chronic illness about sort of decision making and. Um, and uh, patient-provider relationships and the experiences of chronic illness while inside. And as a part of that project, I started doing ethnography of some community organizations, um, which has now really fortunately turned into community collaborations and partnerships that have been ongoing, which is really fantastic. Um, And so I'm continuing to expand that work. And then COVID happened and everybody became a COVID researcher. And I started several other projects sort of looking at what um, it's been like to be incarcerated during COVID, um, what it's been like to work as a prison uh, in the in a prison during COVID and understand that process. And um, I wanted to, to highlight some of the reasons why I think that this is such an important ethics issue. Um, I think it's one that isn't often talked about or talked about sort of rarely um, in bioethics spaces. But I, I just think that healthcare in this setting is so unique. So first of all, this is one of the only populations in the U.S. that is guaranteed like a constitutional right to healthcare, you know, protected under the Eighth Amendment. That's something that most of us don't have in the community. Um, so they have to be provided care. It has to be at a certain standard. You know, there's lawsuits around that. Um, in California, there's been lawsuit, you know, an ongoing lawsuit for, for decades around this. But I, I think in, in doing these interviews, like the way that care delivers is so complex when you sort of think about care being delivered within this punitive system. And and I think something I really want to raise and that I'm trying to explore is that basically, you know, prisons are not good for health, right? I think all the research we know supports this. If you spend sort of even one day incarcerated, your health, you have long-term mental and physical health outcomes that are, are, are worse off than the general population. Um, and I think we saw during COVID specifically that, you know, uh, you know, people, 
there were huge rates of people being um, infected with COVID. People were sort of were sort of sitting ducks, sort of unable to keep themselves safe in this scenario. And so much um, that's what's tough is I think it's also not a great environment in which to to offer care. So I think that this is a bad environment to be a healthcare provider as well. And I know there's and something I I, I try to make clear or I'm thinking about how to explore in more depth. Um, Many of the patients I speak with, incarcerated patients, they don't feel like they're getting good care. They feel like the quality of their care is very poor. They don't feel like they're treated well. But many of the healthcare providers I speak with, you know, they're also operating in a system where they can't do all the care that they want to do. Like, I think the moral distress um, that we see in prison healthcare workers is just off the charts because they're also very helpless in so many ways. They can't provide all the interventions they want to. Um, they, you know, it, it's a it's a difficult place to provide care. And there are many people who who go into this work because they feel very strongly about helping this population. So it's 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 a really tricky space. It's a weird space to develop patient providers relationships, your ability to develop relationships, the rules around developing those relationships are very different in this setting. Um, and I think I think it's just so understudied, this idea of how you make decisions, what autonomy means, what consent means in this setting. And in bioethics in, in general, we spend so much time, I think, focused on some really rare things that happen. You know, if we think about transplant ethics, not that many people get transplants. We think about, um, you know, novel technologies that very few people um, will interact with. And the prison system, I think it's, you know, something like 5% of our population will be incarcerated. It's one in three black men will be incarcerated. Half of all black women have a loved one who's incarcerated or has been incarcerated. This is a, a, a ton of people. And I think we still don't have a really good understanding of some of the really basic bioethic questions we ask of how does autonomy, what does autonomy mean in this setting? What does informed consent actually mean in this setting? Um, how are decisions made? How do people form relationships with their providers? So that's some of what I'm really trying to explore. Um, and try to figure out a way to do it that feels like it's meeting the needs of this community that is has been historically excluded from research for some good reasons. There was some really questionable research that happened for a long time. Um, and, and try to figure out how can this population be engaged in the research process and how can we do research that's that's meeting their needs um, and helping to advance their, their health sort of both in and, and beyond prison. Huh, very uh, interesting, um, Dr. James. And... Um, as a person of color myself, uh, very interesting in regarding the the language you use, centering voices, uh, patient and physician relationship, uh, understanding interpersonal skills and communication. All of these are important uh, variables and factors. Medical narrative, right? Understanding individual stories, whether they do have a record or do not have a record. Still, if a person is sick, at least we ought to think that they should receive the same care. And listening to your response to my colleague Amelia, it sounds like there are a lot of obstacles uh, in care for prisoners or, or for individuals who are incarcerated. And listening to your response, I, I, a bunch of questions came in my mind, but one of them is uh, basically, should there be an oversight in the healthcare services provided for individuals that are incarcerated. It sounds like there are a lot of um, issues because of these contracts, these medical contracts that um, are structured in a way that even if these individuals don't get care, they still get paid, right? And of course, there's a huge issue regarding that, especially within health outcomes. So 
Uh, what are your suggestions um, if you think there should be oversight with, with these healthcare services, particularly in the prison um, system? No, that's a great question. And and one point I'll make at the top is that something that makes this such a, a weird and difficult thing to study is that um, every prison system, sort of every state department of corrections and the federal bureau of prisons operate so differently. And the ability to sort of get data and then understand the data across all these systems is really difficult. So one thing I'll note is that what I might describe from what I've seen in California prisons might feel so different from what someone else is listening who's done research or knows about the prison system in a different state, it's it's going to be totally, it, it operates so differently. So that's one thing to just note and that um, I think is, a, is a, a thing that makes research in this space a little bit tricky, although obviously this exists across many different healthcare systems as well. Um, but I, I do think that more oversight would be useful, but I also think it's, it's, this is what's difficult. This is what's difficult in general about, um, about prisons as a as a thing, as a thing in our society. So I, I have this other paper I'm working on in, in collaboration with some folks that's it's actually focused on um, violence that occurs inside women's prisons. But I think it holds some similar themes. There's this, prisons have by design been, they're often built in remote places. There's very, people aren't easily allowed in. Um, they're designed in this way that we don't know what goes on inside them that we've othered the people who go there. We think those are bad people who are incarcerated. They're not like me. They're bad people who've done bad things, which we know there's a huge range of things that people go to prison for. So labeling them as bad is, you know, not necessarily accurate in any way, or should we label anyone that way? But um, so there's a bad people, they go someplace. I don't see it. I don't know what happens. And it's very out of sight, out of mind. And one thing that someone um, I'm involved with talked about is sort of the Things are disappeared behind the cloak of criminality, right? We don't have to see it. And I think that because of that, um, first, we don't know what the healthcare looks like. Second, many people, I think, don't care. We don't, we don't really care if people aren't getting good care. We don't care if they're not getting good food. We think they deserve it in some way. Um, and third is this problem that because we don't have access to care on the outside, it sort of seems like, why should they get good care? Why is it fair if they get this procedure that I can't get? Why should they get to see a doctor when I can't see a doctor? Why should they get to do X, Y, Z when it costs me this much money? And all of this makes it so complicated, I think, um, to, to make the argument or for our state to want to invest more um, in providing good care. Um, so this is a, a complicated situation. Um, and then in so in California, there was a lawsuit, the Plata case that, as I said, it's been ongoing for 20 years. Um, that was bail- it came up because there was inadequate health care being provided. Um, the Supreme Court, you know, it was ruled on. Uh, it was determined they had to get better and California did not get better. So in um, 2005, 2006, they instituted a receivership. So there's a receiver. So there is someone who's supposed to be providing oversight over the prison, over the healthcare in California prisons. So there's this layered bureaucracy of who makes decisions. Um, and I think it's difficult to say if that has fundamentally changed things. So I think it raises this question of who's providing the oversight? What should their goal be? To whom are they accountable? To whom do they report? Um, and how do we sort of use oversight as a tool um, to make sure that the care is adequate. So how are patient voices being taken into consideration? How are complaints taken in? What are people's ability to um, to say, I'm not getting the care I need, I need something different? People can't, you know, you don't get sort of second opinions in the same way. Who gets to decide if this care was adequate or not? What are the metrics by which it's judged? So I do think more oversight would be useful, um, but I think the how is really complicated. And then the other piece I want to bring up that makes, I think, research 
research on this topic, also complicated. Um, it's something that one of my mentees thinks about quite a bit, who's a med student. What are the ways that sort of medical advocacy or trying to improve the care we offer inside sort of further um, further enmeshes medicine um, within the carceral system or further sort of legitimizes the carceral system. So one example I'll give is there's been some really interesting work on prison hospice programs. Um, and some of it, there's some beautiful ethnography of the, the care work that people do, people who are incarcerated, the way they care for other people who are incarcerated at the end of life. And it's, I think it's a beautiful testament to, to sort of the human spirit. It's so important. Um, and I think it's, it's fantastic, obviously, that someone at the end of life can be cared for by someone who, who can, you know, can provide caring and loving support. They're not dying alone. At the same time, does the existence of this kind of program mean we don't need to release people at the end of life? Would it be better if we made sure that people weren't dying um, of, of progressive diseases inside prisons in the first place? So like I say, it's, it all feels so complicated. We want to both improve the care inside, yet can we do that in a way that doesn't make it so it's more okay to keep people who really need a high high level of care incarcerated interesting so it's basically uh, listening to your response it's like because prison used to be structured to be rehabilitative and now it's more of a punishment type of system even though well was it ever rehabilitative i don't know but exactly um and rehabilitative meaning that there were some at least some form of humanities based programs like at least getting education acquiring a gd or a degree you know obviously it's you know apples and oranges at the case but at least there was some form of um, huma humanities-based programming that a lot of that has been thrown away. So when somebody goes out of prison, at least they have a GED or something that they could get a job. But, but right now it's like a revolving door. You, you, go, you go out and then of course you come right back in because there's not a lot of options available for you. And it seems like it's just this punishment mentality and not really focusing on the human being. Even if they did do something wrong, they're still a human being and they still should have some form of grace, if you will, um, in, in this process of punishment, if you will. And it sounds like, forget about grace, they did wrong, they, they have this scarlet letter for the rest of their lives, no matter whether they're in prison or outside of prison, they're gonna to continue to be punished. And if they're sick, oh well, too bad, they deserve it, right? I guess it's like that mentality that you're um, explaining that unfortunately still exists within the prison systems, but also outside of the prison systems as well, um, that we really have to interrogate and examine. Um, so yeah, that was just my uh, comment. Um, so go ahead, Amelia, I know that you have another uh, follow-up question for Dr. James. I do, yeah, many. <laughs> So many congratulations on being awarded your Green Wall funding. Um, so can you give us some background about, you know, your topic, how you came to learn about this issue and what, what your plans are for exploring it? Yeah. So I'm I'm so excited about about the Green Wall. It officially, you know, the funding started in July and I actually um I have my I just had my first interview officially for the project this week and another one tomorrow. So it's actually happening, which is I love the beginning of a project. It's so exciting. So this project is focused on uh, the forced sterilizations that occurred in California prisons. So just to give some background. So California you know, progressive bastion that we are, had the most far-reaching uh, eugenics program in the country. So, you know, 
from you know the 19 early 1900s through 1979 um, across the country about 60,000 people were sterilized as a part of eugenics programs in California we sterilized 20,000 people um, mostly Latinas um, and you know often targeting people obviously with developmental disabilities and it, it, far-reaching horrible program extent you know it wasn't outlawed until 1979 um and in the california prison system um it turns out uh that basically these sterilizations may have sort of never stopped so in it came to light in 2013 that between 2006 and 2010 at least 144 uh, women incarcerated in California were sterilized without proper consent. So this came this was there was an investigative report um, that brought this to light and then um, some you know lawsuits happened uh, led by some amazing uh, community groups and as well as people inside uh, to sort of say that this this should not be happening. Um, you know, especially in, in this day and age, um, there was a, you know, a state audit that sort of confirmed that at least 100, as I said, 144 or 148 women were sterilized um, during C-section. So women who were pregnant when they were incarcerated, um, there was a really high rate of people having uh, planned C-sections, which is which was interesting. Um, and then during those C-sections, they were, uh, you know, their tubes were tied. Uh, received a tubal ligation um, and some ha- consented in some ways, but it, there was already, because of the receiver strip I mentioned, there was a process in place of levels of oversight that are supposed to happen before anyone was sterilized and those processes were not followed. Um, so these sterilizations that happened during this time period were already not allowed. They weren't supposed to be happening. Um, it wasn't legal. But in response to this, um, a bill was passed um, through a bill. A bill was passed in 2014, sort of uh, reaffirming: No, it's definitely illegal. You cannot sterilize people uh, for purposes of birth control. You can't sterilize people without their consent. And basically outlining that um, you know there's this series of procedures that can only happen if it's sort of medically necessary. There has to be a, a series of approvals um, that that need to happen. Uh, before, so it can't you know can't be on a whim. You have to consent within a certain amount of time and um, things like this. So um, fast forward. This is this is in twenty. Uh, so this is in twenty fourteen. Fast forward to a couple years ago, um, in conversation with some of my community partners, they raised this as an area where they thought research was needed. Um, and part of that was there's a bill that had been, it it was it, at that time, I think in its second or third year, going through the California state legislature to provide compensation or, or reparations to folks who'd been sterilized in both the eugenics program that ended in 1979 and in people who were sterilized inside California prisons. So um, the law finally, um, it finally passed this year. Um, it, the budget was was signed this summer. Um, and so now starting in January, people who were sterilized in the state um, a part of, as a part of either program um, will be able to receive compensation. So that's a process that I'm following that's interesting of how people can apply. But what's complicated, there's a couple of things that make this complicated about what happened in prison. So... Um, first is the people who, so there's people who the state has identified that they know were sterilized. They had a tubal ligation, um, during, during childbirth without their consent, but many of those people still haven't been notified. So people were sterilized and they may not know that this happened to them. The state never notified them that this happened. So that was part of this bill is not only giving people reparations, but telling them in the first place that they were sterilized. The second is the audit only looked at this one type, only looked for tubal ligations. But a lo- many other people were sterilized or believed they were sterilized um, via hysterectomy or oophorectomy um, under sort of shady circumstances. So there's a, a film that came out this last year, Belly of the Beast. Um, which centers 
um, Kelly Dillon, who's a, a woman who was sterilized while inside, and a lawyer, Cynthia Chandler, who worked for an organization called Justice Now and um, sort of led the fight uh, for this, this for these bills uh, around this topic. Um, and Kelly Dillon was her sterilization occurred that she was told she went in for a surgery um, for issues she was having and was told yes you can remove organs if there's cancer detected. And they did remove the organs. They didn't tell her this. She went into menopause. Um, you know when she was very young had all these side effects and didn't know why because no one told her that um, she'd had a hysterectomy. And it turned out there wasn't any cancer. So she did sign a consent form, agree to remove something, but it was under, you know, the circumstances weren't followed. So I think what we're going to see now over the next year as people can apply for reparations, um, we're sort of in CCWP, California Coalition for Women Prisoners, one of the organizations I work with, um, you know, we're working to put together uh, groups of, of healthcare providers to help review documentation, medical documentation, people's health records to understand folks who think that they were sterilized to see was this actually medically necessary? Did it meet these criteria? Um, what happened? What was the consent process like to try to better understand this process? So um, that's one piece. And then the other piece I want to raise is this bill that um, passed in 2014 that made it more difficult to do sterilizations. I'm interested to understand what that means for reproductive health decision making now in the modern context since then. So at the time that bill was passed, um, ACOG spoke out against it. Um, and American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology saying we're worried this will limit women's ability to make decisions because many people may want to be sterilized, right? It's totally legitimate that you think I don't want to have any more kids, tie my tubes while I'm already having a baby, right? That's that's a legitimate, absolutely great thing for someone to decide if that's what they want. So people are now not allowed to make that decision while they're incarcerated. And there was a concern if someone's having another issue, right? If I'm having fibroid tumor or something that's very, very common in black women over the age of 40 and especially will you not be able to get the procedures that you need? So part of my research is involving talking to patients and providers about how they make reproductive health decisions to understand, is there a difference now that this bill has passed? Um, what does it mean in this context? And something that actually just came up in, in an interview I did, which I hadn't even thought about, which is what I love about qualitative research, I hadn't thought about as I was, as I was designing this project with my community partners, is what was the role of sort of the discourse around all this? So people... I think we sort of forget, you know, the news that I saw and that I could read about this issue, people inside often could see too. They were watching news programs. They were hearing what folks were saying about the sterilizations going on inside. They knew about this bill and so did their healthcare providers. So what did that mean? That What did the, just the, the role of the idea that sterilizations aren't allowed, how did that influence how patients and providers made decisions? So that's sort of the, the goal of this project is both to, to understand the stories of people who were sterilized to sort of really center those narratives. What was that like? What does that mean sort of going forward for their health care, for their family building? How did that feel? And then also to understand how do people make healthcare decisions about reproductive health now? Um, and what does it mean for, you know, how do they think about their future family building and as well as other health complications that come up when you're incarcerated? So it sounds like there's a concern that maybe this is gone the wrong way and it's going to be limiting uh, some women's decisions about their reproductive choices. Yeah. 
You know, I don't know. And the the folks who were involved in the bill really pushed back against that. They do not believe that to be the case. Um, and I think they, they sort of rightly prioritize making sure that people aren't getting unwanted procedures. They're not being sterilized without their consent, which I totally understand. But I, I do think it's a, it's a really interesting regulatory context. I think reproductive health often has really interesting regulatory context, but sort of the levels of approval that are needed to make a decision is really complicated. And as I said, I think we already don't have enough understanding about what autonomy and informed consent and shared decision making looks like in this setting. So when we sort of add this like really politically charged, like heightened regulatory framework, I, I just want to know like, it, you know, what is that like? Maybe nothing operates differently now. Maybe it's all it's the same. I, I don't know the answer, but I think getting a better understanding about what increased regulation means um, is important. And I think, you know, we saw, well, you know, about a year ago now, um, when uh, Don, uh, oh my gosh, from Irwin Detention Center, and I just forgot her last name, Wooten, Don Wooten, spoke out about the forced sterilizations that she um, alleged occurred in the ICE Detention Center. You know, this is a practice that happens, that still happens around our country. It, I mean, sterilizations are routine, routinely offered um, as a deterrent or as an, uh, a possible alternative to incarceration. There's judges who will say, if you if you get an IUD, if you if you get a vasectomy, you don't have to go to you don't have to serve time. Um, so I think that I, I think getting a better understanding about what heightened regulation in this space means may be useful as people are um, advocating for new legislation in other jurisdictions um, around the country. And is there any sense of what the providers were thinking that were conducting these procedures? I mean, they were operating with you know under the umbrella of the 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 carceral system but I mean do we have any sense of how they did this because it, it seems like it's just such a violation of all ethical principles even to a lay person who wouldn't have heard of the the ethical principles um so how how did this um happen and you know what what were those providers thinking yeah such a good point um it's such a good point for two reasons so so first, one thing I want to really highlight is that most of the providers who who did these procedures were operating in community hospitals. So when people give birth, they go outside to a hospital in the community. Um, when people have surgeries, they go outside of the hospital community. So there's doctors who work on site and they do certain procedures, but most things that require anesthesia and, you know, if you need to go to a hospital, you go to a hospital. Um, so most of the people who did this weren't people who worked for the prison. They weren't, you know, they didn't sort of have any of the sort of um, potential dual loyalties to like the prison system and their patients. These are people who worked in hospitals. And I think that's something that, again, I, I hadn't written into my original um, research proposals for this work. But as I had more and more conversations, I, it struck me how important I think it's going to be is to try to speak with uh, speak with providers um, who've worked in hospitals sort of near prisons to understand how they make decisions and how how they uh, how they decide how they sort of weigh instructions they get from the facilities and and the the security concerns that come up and how they make decisions with their patients. And I actually had someone um, email me who who uh, you know heard about my work and she said she remembers when she was in training there was a, you know a person came in um, who was incarcerated and they who and was sterilized during a C-section and how matter of a fact it was and how she felt like her her the people who were above her you know her attendings or older residents 
there was so she felt like there was such little concern for uh, the 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 need for the for people to fully consent or fully understand what was happening to them, and so I think one piece of this I want to try to better understand is is what is our training around providing care for incarcerated patients, um, how do we make decisions with incarcerated patients, and what does that look like in a community setting too? Um, I think is something that'll be really important. But then on just the other note about what do we know about what providers thought, um, this is what's so difficult. So one of the doctors um, who was, you know, the who was the OBGYN at a, a state prison in California that's no longer, it, 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 it was shut down. They were moved to it. You know, they changed the, the organization of the prisons in the state um, at the time who uh, is his... Uh, he is sort of the most famous sort of face of this. He under under his uh, care, the number of, of, of sterilization procedures went way up, and there were many complaints about his care sort of outside of this. But he made a statement to a journalist, basically saying like, the cost of sterilizing all these women is a lot cheaper than all the babies they're going to keep having, like supporting them on welfare, right? Which is like really explicitly saying I'm I'm sterilizing them because I don't think they should have children because I think that the state will have to pay for it. Like to me, that feels extremely extremely eugenic in in mm-hmm. its framing um, and sort of takes out it, it sort of takes away some question but I know many other healthcare providers working in the setting have said we were trying to do what was best for our patients we were trying you know maybe we didn't follow either saying we didn't understand the rules we didn't know we didn't follow them or saying you know our patients wanted this we were trying to help them and do what they want so I think that there is a huge variability perhaps in in provider motivation and I'm excited to to learn more about it through interviews. And you just popped a question in my head that I didn't have prepared, uh, Dr. James. Awesome. Um, so obviously eugenics is still alive and well, even though we said, oh, no, that's pseudoscience. You know, that's that's absurd. Back. That's something that was in the uh, 20th century and the 19th century. But obviously there's still stains and premises of this that still exist within um, every clinical practice in our country, whether it's in prisons, whether it's a regular hospital. And I'm curious, um, speaking of eugenics, of course, the infamous uh, J. Marion Sims, uh, the quote unquote um, personified father of gynecology, and how, of course, he, as you well know, as well as our listeners, uh, worked and experimented on slave women. And this idea of um, not just uh, black men, but also black women, uh, or have a higher pain threshold or higher pain tolerance compared to other particular patients. And I'm just curious, how much do you think these particular um, connotations, whether obviously no biological basis whatsoever, but how these biases and connotations of the black body influence such treatment within prisons, but also within clinical contexts today? Um, so that is my uh, question for you. Yeah. Hi, yeah, yeah. That's a big one, obviously. No, right. I mean, I do think that those ideas of, of, I mean, first of all, I am someone who pushes back very strongly about sort of the use of race as a biological factor in medicine. Um, mm-hmm. Race is not biological. You know, race is a social category. It has relevance to many areas of science. Like we need to understand health disparities. I think we also need to understand um, different communities and, and different uh, different populations and how they approach their care. Um, but I think that we do see these legacies of feeling. I mean, there's there's many studies out about this, right? People still, medical students still believe that black people have thicker skin. <laughs> like, 
like mm-hmm. um, there's you know that there's the different yeah different pain tolerances we see it in the rates even starting with with children right kids coming in kids who come into the hospital um, black kids are presumed to have to be in less pain or offer less pain meds than than white kids so it's not even just adults that we think are drug seeking quote unquote right um, so this is extremely pervasive and I think we need to do some radical changes to our medical education and to the way we center race in um, in healthcare. Uh, to hopefully address this. So that's, I mean, that's one big piece that this is a big problem. And, you know, I think this is something I, I think what's so difficult. So I think that I think racism and and assumptions about race absolutely plays a role. First of all, I mean, and obviously in who goes to prison in the first place, what these populations look like, and then how people in there are perceived. Um, there's a lot of work out there about sort of uh, the way that people are separated and treated differently based on race. It's something I've seen in, in my research, the way that it's been really powerful, actually, to see the way that... Um, white women inside older white women will sort of use the privilege they know they have in this environment um, to help others is something that's really interesting to think about is the way that people are aware of, of their of the layers of, of privilege and how they operate in their ability to get health care and their ability to um, to to ask things of correctional officers. But one thing that I think comes up so much in this setting, which I think we see in ERs and we see in other settings as well, is just people not being believed when they're ill. Um, and the assumption that people are using health and illness to get something, right? So whether that's to get drugs, whether that's to get out of a space or out of work, um, and people not being believed that their symptoms are real. Um, and, you know, it's something like I, in my work on cancer, it's been interesting, you know, how many black women who had very advanced disease that was not diagnosed early and they sort of weren't believed or they were given, you know, oh, it's just this. So mild, you know, given, you know, really mild um treatment for symptoms instead of fully having a workup to understand what was going on. And I remember in that in that project, what was so interesting to me was how little outrage there was from patients about this. There wasn't sort of an expectation that, of course, I should have been believed about my symptoms. And of course, there should have been a workup because they were so used to it. Right. This is how care operates. You don't get the health care you need right when you need it. Um, and I think inside you know, I've heard just so many stories about people who um, who were in, incredibly ill and couldn't get the care that they needed. And, and things like people sort of being told nothing's wrong with you, being kicked, being told to get up when they sort of pass out or when they're on the ground in pain. Um, and people who, who, who died either because their, you know, their symptoms weren't addressed in a timely manner or because they didn't seek care because they assumed they wouldn't be believed. Um, and so... What I think is is so important is that we ascribe ulterior motives um, to people seeking health care. Um, we assume that it's for other reasons. And, you know, I, I, I participated in an event recently. It was putting two books in conversation. Um, the books were Bandage, Sort, and, Sort and Hustle by Josh Seem, Seim, <laughs> S-I-E-M. And, and the other was... Um, Oh shoot! Redistributing the poor, and 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 these two by um, Armando Laramian, and these these two books both sort of talk about healthcare delivery in different contexts. One is ambulances, and the other is ERs and jails. And in both settings, which really the, their ethnography is focused on the healthcare workers, in all these settings, there's an assumption that there's patients who are trying to game the system, right? They're just trying to get something out of it. Whether it's they want to, they just want to ride to the hospital, they just want drugs, they just want to complain, and 
and I think that that is it's the same thing in prison. So we have these safety nets that are supposed to be there. This is supposed to be where people can get care. This is supposed to be where people can get need when they have nothing else, which I think prisons and jails are a great example of that. And we still assume that by accessing that safety net, there's something wrong. You shouldn't need to do it. It's your fault. You should be able to get care elsewhere or you have an ulterior motive. There's something else you're trying to gain. And I think we just really need to address that. And to me, what I think is important is, and a, a healthcare provider actually who works in a prison articulated this really well. She said, people are trying to get their needs met. And maybe that need isn't healthcare in this moment, but the reason they're coming to you is there's a need. So instead of sort of, you know, assuming it's it's bad or blaming them, like we need to work with them to figure out how to get their needs met, whatever that may be. Um, and I think that that practice of assuming that that need isn't legitimate, um, isn't appropriate, or shouldn't they don't have a right to ask is extremely raced. And I think it's just, that's just seen across so many sectors of our healthcare. Yeah, absolutely. I actually have a colleague uh, who has sickle cell anemia. Yeah. And he needs pain medication because of his condition. And I can't tell you how many times he said he has to go through hell, unfortunately, just to get the proper medication because they think that he's addicted to uh, pain meds, right? I'm sure he knows I need this medication. I need this dosage. And that's a huge red flag. Like if you, how dare you know what your body needs? You must right. be drug seeking, right? Yeah. Right, right. So the all these preconceived notions regarding that, uh, very interesting. Um, also, uh, before Amelia comes after with a question, I do have a follow up because yeah. you did mention training. And of course, medical textbooks, um, especially recently, not recently, actually, probably within the past um, 10 to 15 years have been under scrutiny um, officially regarding lack of representation. Um, for example, in dermatology, uh, they only have white skin, white epidermis, right? Um, and a lot of uh, black patients or Latinx patients or individuals who have darker melanin um, in their skin that have melanoma, for example, because the, the dermatologists weren't trained adequately uh, with other hues of skin, unfortunately, the diagnosis is late stage, usually stage four or, even, or worse with melanoma because their training wasn't inclusive of all different individuals and in all hues. Um, I'm curious, how do you think we could make medical textbooks, whether it's in dermatology, whether it's in perinatal care, whether it just in general doesn't necessarily have to be a specialty, more inclusive? I think that's such a good example. It's something that I think comes up way too often. Um, and when you said that, the one example I, I always think of that I hear from some of my colleagues in pediatrics is there's a skin condition that I can't remember the name of that um, I, because it looks so differently in different skin types and because of the preconceived notions you have about patients, when chil black children present with this, it's almost always assumed that it's actually bruises and that the parents are being abusive when it, in actuality, if we had better sort of education on what the skin condition looked like, um, it could be diagnosed and anyway, avoid a lot of, a lot of pain for the, for all parties involved. Um, so, you know, I don't, I don't know if I, I can speak <laughs> adequately to medical textbooks themselves. So <laughs> that's one thing I do think obviously having more inclusive pictures, um, having what disease, how diseases present across many groups is important. But one thing I'll just note is that I think that the way we sort of, I think that there's a few things about the way we, we frame patient narratives. And this is something I've seen come up in, in sort of medical education at, at my institution and discussions around it. Um, you know, historically, you know, 
I think, thinking about when is race introduced, you know, and I think it used to sort of be, you know, you always say this is, you know, this is Mr. X. He's a 57 year old black man. And like that's sort of like the standard. And I think there's been a pushback against that. Do we need to say race? Is it relevant? How are we biasing other people by including race in this? What do we mean? Um, Which I understand that that desire or that that push. But I think it, it has led to a situation where now often those sort of patient narratives that are used for teaching, race is only included if it's seen as quote unquote relevant, um, which also is problematic because I first of all, it, it, it assumes that maybe race doesn't always matter, isn't always playing a role in how people interact with the world and with their health care, which we know is false. And second, it means that race is sort of only used either in cases where um, you know, we think, oh, like we talk about sickle cell. So we're going to tell you it's a black patient because black, you know, sickle cell usually occurs in black patients. So we are narrowing down that this is a disease that occurs in this type of people. This is a disease occurs in this type of people, which we know means that in those types of spaces, it's harder to get diagnosed. If your race um, and the prevalence of a disease don't match up, it can be harder to get diagnosed. Or it means that then there's been a lot of complaints from students that I've heard in, in various education settings across many areas of healthcare. Of it turns out that we use race in settings, um, or that the stories about people of color are always the ones that involve drug use, or always the ones that involve homelessness, or the stories about queer people are always the ones that involve AIDS. Right? We're not just making it that this is like a black queer person who has you know a broken arm. It you know a broken arm. We assume it's a white you know a white middle class person. It's always these specialized spaces, and I think that's problematic too. So I think we both have to normalize the inclusion of of how we how we think about these these categories and. and and really dive in deeper to try to understand what it means for this person, what what it means for how they might approach healthcare, how they might be approached by healthcare, what they're bringing into the space, how society is influencing their care, and thinking about what we mean when we talk about race. So my biggest concern, or one of my big concerns, I guess I have a, a million, about the way we use race in medicine is we use it as a proxy for so many things. So race is a proxy for genetic ancestry. Race is a proxy for socioeconomic status. Race is a proxy for your skin color. Race is a proxy for your nationality, for your language, for on and on and on. And I think the more we can encourage um, our trainees and then later our providers in conversation with their patients to understand what we mean when we say that, it will matter. So if I'm talking um, to a patient and you know I just they just checked a box, one of five boxes or what which may not describe them, I think articulating like, oh, actually, you know what's important in, in this medication is your level of melanin, right? So I it's not it's not your race that matters. It's how dark your skin color is that's going to matter for this. So that might matter if you're Dominican, right? And you want what you need to articulate isn't your isn't your ethnicity, isn't your 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 language, your nationality, it's it's your skin color. Or this actually is an ancestry thing. This occurs mostly from people who um, have who have ancestors from this area of the world. So even though you might identify as black, the fact that you have three white grandparents is really going to be relevant for 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 this type of care. And I think we don't dive in and have those conversations. Those are we don't we aren't taught how to talk about the what's behind race, what's behind our assumptions about race with our patients. And I think it's uncomfortable for a lot of people. But the earlier we can sort of normalize what you mean by race and how to sort of dig into it and articulate that to your patient, why you're collecting that information, which we should do across in general. Why do you need to know my height? Why do you need to know my weight? Why do you need to know my gender? You know, what is that about? Is that my organs? Is it my hormones? Is it, you know, um, I think the better care we can offer long term. Um, I just wanted to ask you about your piece um, that you wrote for a job uh, beyond seeing race centering racism and acknowledging agency within bioethics. That was another great piece. Um, 
Can you talk about, you know, bioethics specifically and where, you know, it's maybe failed in examining marginalised populations? I really like the way you end on centering, centre the margins, because we're bioethics in the margins and we're trying to kind of shine a light on some of these these issues. No, and, and you know, there's a couple of things. So first, I think it's important, I think, to acknowledge that um, bioethics has historically been and, and presently very white. Um there's certain, you know, and so that matters. Bioethics is a very is a very white space. I think, as we all know, there's a lot of great folks who are who are moving in and changing that. But I think there's a couple things that are important to to think about. One, I think bioethics bioethics is an interdisciplinary space. Um, most people, I think, in bioethics, um, a lot most people's like their their primary training is in another field, right? So whether they're clinicians, whether they're social scientists, whether they're philosophers, and in that ways, I think bioethics becomes a space that people don't have to be in. So I could continue to do this exact same work and never go to a bioethics meeting, never publish in a bioethics journal. I could find other places for it, um, and I think that means that if we want to to keep these if we want to keep sort of scholars of color in this space we have to make it a space where they want to be we have to make it a space where we're sort of celebrating the work that they do um i know keisha ray has has written and spoken about this about how you know how often she and and other uh, bioethicists of color have to sort of prove that the work that they do is bioethics because there's an assumption that it's not that work about racism isn't actually bioethics work um you know that we think about bioethics as being sort of a a couple key areas where people do work and and sort of really need to prove and i think it's the same thing for me like talking about like why i think prison um is 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 a central uh bioethics issue that we need to explore so that's one piece and the second is i think bioethics um has a tendency or, or can have a tendency we can sort of sit up on our on our on our our mountaintop and gaze down at the healthcare space and talk about what we think they need to do differently and i think even when we talk about things like racism we talk about them in society i think maybe we identify it in healthcare spaces but how much work do we do thinking about the role that bioethics as a discipline has played in advancing racism or not you know not being actively anti-racist and what are the ways that bioethics needs to i think do work to atone for the harms of that bioethics perhaps has perpetuated and what are the ways that we can really dive in um, and do the work and be a leader and think in sort of transforming the, the type of clinical care and research we do to make sure that it's actively anti-racist. How can we recenter our focus? How can we, you know, I think there's important work to be done on on many of these issues uh, that, you know, affect, you know, on, on spaces around, on, on rare diseases, on on novel technologies, on on things that, you know, most people don't have access to that are, you know, I, I think only accessible to the to the wealthy but I do think we need to really prioritize in bioethics focusing on these critical huge issues of justice um, that affect huge portions of our population um, and and have the people that really haven't been brought into those conversations so I'll finish up up with this and it's actually applicable to uh, your last comment Uh, why do you think black indigenous and people of colors or as you um, put it a acronym BIPOC why are these voices um, are filtered and are not adequately represented in bioethics? Does unconscious bias play a role in our academic literature? I mean, yes, un- unconscious and maybe even conscious bias definitely plays a role in our academic literature. You know, it's interesting. I think um, 
I mean, so first I should note, not all BIPOC scholars do work on race and racism. And I think that's really important to highlight. I think we too often um, assume that all BIPOC scholars want to and do work on this area or are experts on this area. And I think it's important to distinguish those. But I am, I think, speaking to those of us who do work in that area. So, but I do think that's important that for all the BIPOC bioethicists listening who don't do work focusing on this, that's okay. Don't worry. (laughs) You don't have to. Don't feel an obligation. Um, For all the white bioethicists, you should do work on this area and you should feel an obligation too. So anyway, but I I think if we look at sort of the medical literature over the last, I can't remember how many years, the, the mentions of racism, there was like none forever. It's like in the last, like, you know, five years and really in the last year, the ability to talk about racism and have that accepted for publication and sort of top medical journals has like just started as a thing. So if that was what you work, work was doing, you either had to, you know, water it down, not use those types of term or it was seen as biased, it was seen as bad. Um, you, you had to water it down, you had to publish other places and other types of journals. And that's meant that like you really couldn't, you couldn't do that work. And I think even if we look at something like ASBH, you know, there's like, um, you know, there's there's like one, what are they called? I can't remember what they, you know, you can pick where you want to submit. There's like the different categories you can submit in for your abstract. And there's like one that's like on diversity. Like it's still sort of seen as like, this is like one fun thing you can do. And not that like all of our work should be engaging in these topics, like really in depth. Um, and I think if we talk to, you know, if we talk to scholars of color, I feel like they feel like their work isn't accepted. Um, it's harder to get funded. I think if you want to do community engaged work, that takes a lot of time. It's really hard in a soft money environment, which I think a lot of bioethicists work, you know, in soft money types of academic medical centers. It can be really tough to get funded. Um, so I, I think there's many sort of structural barriers to doing this work long term. Um, and I think it, a lot of folks coming up sort of in this generation and the one, the previous generation, their mentors, it's very likely were white. So the work that they were doing might not have focused on these areas as well. You know, you sort of have to have that investment. You have to have someone bringing you into the bioethics space, um, you know, having that sponsorship. Um, and I think that's harder for, we know it's harder to, to sort of have that level of mentorship to get that, um, to get, to help you um, navigate these these weird spaces, the weird world that is bioethics. Um, you know, it, it's, it's something that scholars of color have to do a lot more work to really to really get to um and then i'll just note you know i feel like every asbh um and bioethics meeting i've attended i've been in sessions where i felt very uncomfortable with the way things were discussed i've seen the way that um white bioethicists take up space that they shouldn't where they correct and speak over bioethicists of color where there's panels on topics um, related to this that don't feature people of color um and that's that's really troubling and i you know i always (laughs) talk to folks at these meetings who are like yep this is the last time i'm coming um they don't feel like this is the space that's doing the work they want to do they don't feel like it's it's um, it's affordable. They don't feel like they can bring community. Um, and I think as we get, you know, to other, you know, I think this is even more the case for folks with disabilities. I think it's even more the case for, for trans folks. Um, you know, and so I think this, it's not always an easy space to be in. We're actually, uh, something that came out of the, the race affinity group of ASBH, uh, is we're doing a, a, a listening session at the next meeting, virtually, of course, um, asking asking folks who sort of identify as sort of being a bioethicist on the margins, like, 
what brings you here? What do you want out of this? What, how are your needs not being met with the hope that we can sort of bring this to ASBH leadership and sort of really start generating what can we do differently to make ASBH a space that scholars of, of race and medicine see that bioethics can be and should be a home for them? How do we make sure that those connections are happening? And I, I think so often when we talk about this this work, this type of work in this topic, it turns into like, what support do scholars of color need to be successful, which is great. And I obviously want tools to help support me being successful. But it's like comes from this deficit mindset as if scholars of color like need a leg up, don't have all the they're not doing great work already. And not from this, like, what, do, what does bioethics need to do to retain these great minds? How do we make sure that amazing, um, you know, amazing scholars who are doing work on these topics want to do it from a bioethics framework, want to center their work within bioethics, want to join bioethics centers, um, want to collaborate with other bioethics colleagues. And, and that's the piece I think we need to do. How do we make bioethics a place that scholars of color want to sort of think of as an academic or scholarly home? Because you're talking about representation, which is yeah. key. And uh, another one of my questions that I wanted to ask is, uh, what are your suggestions on including Black, Indigenous, um, people of color, uh, the LGBTQIA plus community in high level leadership roles in medicine. I'm talking about deans, provosts, directors, department chairs. Of course, uh, we are having the privilege to be professors in this particular field. Uh, what do you think at an administrative level could have uh, different voices on making decisions on curriculum and different programs in medical schools and also in the clinical setting? Um, well, first is, is do it. Yeah, <laughs> yes, basically. <laughs> no, but I, a couple specific things. So, okay. So one thing I'll point to, I think is something I, I hear from a lot of folks and, um, a mentor of mine, um, Monica McElmore often talks about sort of like the, the dangers of being an only, you know, what does it look like when you're an only in your space? And I think we have, a, we have all these great initiatives. Like last year, the job market in all these disciplines was like, we want a scholar to talk about race because Black Lives Matter happens and it was a big deal and this is how we're responding. But I think it is important to think about what happens when you bring in, you know, one BIPOC scholar, one XYZ, what, you know, category scholar and, you know, all these areas of difference. Um, they're the only person in your department. Um, they're the only person in your school, uh, uh, which for some people is fine, but I think it's important to think about. And then they need to be on every committee so that every committee has representation. They need to mentor. They're expected to mentor all the students of color or all the first gen students or all the LGBT students, et cetera. Um, you, you're putting these huge burdens on people. They take on so much and they're not compensated for it. It's not recognized in advancement. They're not seen as being productive because they've been doing so much service and so much mentorship and so much teaching, which they probably really want to do. Most people, you know, most of us really want to do that work, but it's not sort of valued in the same way and when they speak up and they are this voice to push things forward they're shot down right they're not seen they're not seen well and that all gets considered into advancement so i think thinking about how how do we make sure that we're bringing people into an environment where they want to be where they see that this is a voice this is a place that wants to advance they want to be making changes they want to be radicalizing the institution in some way how do we make sure that they are getting recognized for all the extra work that so many scholars of color do in in the effort 
effort of, of making these changes that then the university wants to put on their brochures and in their in their pack in their promotion packets asking for money. So how do we recognize that? Um, and then that I think that goes even more so when we get into leadership positions. You know, what autonomy do they have to bring in more people? Um, how 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 are they being supported as they try things out? I think it takes a lot of experimentation to do this work. I think you can't just say, "Cool, let's drop in three new books in the curriculum and call it a day." You know, you can't just say, "Let's hire six new people." You have to try things out and see what works and be in conversation with your community. Um, and all that takes time and it takes money and it takes support. And so I think too many institutions want to, you know, their DEI efforts are focused on the D, right? It's focused on let's increase our diversity. We ha- we brought in X number of scholars who fill these buckets. Our dean, we put, you know, our dean is this looks like this. Therefore, we are done. We've accomplished it. You know, Barack Obama was president. Everything's fine now. We know that that's not true. So if you're not really invested on changing the culture of your institution, then it's like, I'd rather you didn't bother. I'd rather you just said, sorry, we're, we're a primarily white serving institution. That's how we want to remain. Um, because it just makes it harder for that individual. And I think it's just like really demoralizing. So I think there you need to change the culture and you have to want the culture to be changed. Absolutely. It's the burden. Uh, it's uh, two things. It's tokenism, which of yep. course you try to avoid because you just, oh, we have this one black or Hispanic or Asian specific, uh, specific island or Latinx individual. We're done. No, that's just the beginning mm-hmm. because that brings a burden of representation that one person cannot bear. It's just too much for one person to number one. Again, it reifies representing your own race and you're not representing that one uh, a, you know, millions of people, whether you're black, Asian, specific Islander, Latinx, you know, whatever your spectrum you're coming from. So there has to be more efforts of not just having one person, but multiple people at different levels to include in that culture that you were talking about. So I think that's really important and something that we really need to consider uh, moving forward in all levels of medicine and healthcare. I think it's, I think we need to do that. So uh, I'm done with my question because I do have more, but I'll, I'll behave, Amelia, and uh, I'll, I'll bring it to you. <laughs> Thank you so much um, for this great conversation and all the work you're doing. And hopefully we can maybe check in with you if we're still going on our podcast in a, a year or so with how your work's going with the Green Wall. Oh, that'd be great. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I can't wait till I'm at the point where I can share data. So that sounds awesome. <laughs> Good thing to shoot for. This has been lovely. I really, I really appreciate the invitation. It's been so great. And I, you know, as you can tell, I can talk about this all day long. It's been a, it's been a really fun opportunity. Thank you for listening to another great conversation on bioethics in the margins. This podcast is hosted by Amelia Barwise and Kirk Johnson. Our producer is Elizabeth Chung. Our editor is Nicole Strand. Our theme music was written and produced by Pablo Cuartas. And we are grateful for the assistance of Wendy Jiang and Benjamin Foster. Join us again next time.